0: with Ananias and Sapphira and the, the, their attempt to lie to the Holy Spirit and Peter calling that uh, threat out as, uh, as what it is, a threat to the church from the inside. And then in Acts chapter 6, we see, I think, uh, in some ways, a third attempt for Satan to disrupt the church, where the first and the second were seemingly more direct attacks on the church. This third one, Uh, seems to be uh, a little more subtle, right? If if I can't stop the church from preaching the gospel with a threat from the outside, if I can't corrupt it from the inside, then I'll just try to distract them with something that takes their attention away from the proclamation of the word. And so, I'd like to walk through this text this morning, uh, but especially if you're visiting with us, I want to apologize, I guess, on the front end, because today is probably in some ways going to be a little bit inside baseball, right? Like, uh, I think, and there are things that gonna uh, kind of mark our life together as a congregation and the way we're kind of organized as a church uh, that are probably a little bit different than some churches around us, and I think uh, it's pretty easy to assume uh, that, uh, well, I don't know, that's why we, why we do it that way. That's just the way we do it. Uh, and we certainly, uh, as a church, never want to be people uh, who just do things because that's the way it's done, right? That we strive to be people who pin everything on Scripture and Uh, I think this is one of the points in the book of Acts where maybe some of the things that uh, mark our life together as a congregation and some of the things that we do together as a congregation that maybe some other churches don't do, very much I would suggest to you have a biblical rationale. They're not just tradition, they're not accidents of history, but there's a biblical rationale and it's found uh, in part in this text. So I'd like to read the text together, and then kind of walk through some of the way I think this text informs our life together as a congregation. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve table, a word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when the, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you now uh, turning to your word uh, for wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, quiet our hearts, Lord, that you would remove anything that distracts us, God, that you would refresh our minds, that we could uh, discern the truth of this word, Lord, that we would see. Uh, how it informs our lives, God. we pray that uh, you would use this text this morning to help us better understand your purpose for the church and and what your call to the church is. Lord, we pray that you would uh, find us, God, ready to embrace all that you reveal to us, God, humbly walking in obedience uh, in response to the grace of Jesus Christ. How do we pray all of this in His name? Amen. So, uh, a little bit of a problem uh, comes up in Acts chapter six, and I guess uh, maybe to understand the problem, we have to recognize that when Luke uh, introduces these two compl- or these two groups, one complaining about the other, he's talking about uh, Jewish people some of those Jewish people are from Jerusalem or the surrounding area, and some of those Jewish people had left uh, Israel and lived in Greek cities and then returned to Jerusalem and were now living in Jerusalem. And we know that it was actually fairly common for that to happen, like Jews would be dispersed to other cities, Alexandria, Antioch, somewhere in Greece, right? Uh, They would live there over the course of their lives but as they were reaching old age they would you know leave their kids leave their home and return to jerusalem kind of wanting to die in the holy city right Uh, and for some of those uh, some of those people that were returning to jerusalem to retire uh, so to speak uh, if the husband were to die first Uh, The wife, uh, left widowed in Jerusalem without children there because they were still in Alexandria or Antioch or whatever, uh, would sometimes very much struggle. Uh, And uh, the church apparently had a, a number of these Hellenist widows, people that weren't from the Jerusalem area, probably didn't have a family network in the Jerusalem area to support them, and were struggling in their old age. Uh, and Luke has said several times uh, to this point that one of the things that marked the church was this urgent desire to care for all the needy or do all that they could to ensure that there weren't any needy people in the fellowship of the church to the point that we've read that people were selling houses or properties and giving that money over to the apostles to provide for these people. And even as that kind of gospel-informed, spectacular generosity has been present in the church, uh, there's now this issue where some of uh, the Greek-speaking widows uh, are are suggesting that the, the Aramaic-speaking widows, the widows from the Jerusalem area, are getting a little bit more in the fu- food distribution. And Luke doesn't really fill us in on anything more than that. Okay? He's not suggesting, I think, that somebody was intentionally discriminating against the Hellenistic widows. It's quite possible, I think, that the Hellenistic widows speak Greek and not Aramaic, where the church is assumingly primarily Aramaic-speaking, and it could just be an accident that some of these people that speak a different language are being overlooked. Nevertheless, there's this problem. Some people in the church are being treated differently than other people in the church, and it's seen most visibly in the daily distribution of the food to those who are in need. And you would think, uh, reading this, uh, that uh, you know, after seeing Peter uh, call out Ananias and Sapphira the way he did, that Peter might be the type of guy that's like, "I'll oh, just pipe down, widows. Stop complaining. Like this is nothing. We have the word of God to proclaim." Uh, but that's, that's absolutely not what happens in this text. The apostles immediately recognize the nature of the threat to the church's unity, that they don't want these physical circumstances to disrupt, uh, the apparent, uh, unity that the gospel brings in the life of the church. Uh, I think further, really to understand, uh, the way that this text, uh, to some degree, informs the nature of our life together as a church, uh, we probably need to recognize that uh, this term, uh, what what the ESV translates as daily distribution, is diakonia, uh, like the word that we get deacon from as a verb, right? So, Luke never uses the noun deacon in this passage. We'll see that later in the New Testament, but twice in this passage— he references the ministry of the deacons with the verb that is translated in verse 1, distribution, but the, the idea is deaconing, the daily deaconing. Uh, and then we'll see it again in, ver- in verse 4 with the deaconing of the word or the ministry of the word. And I'd like to, uh, while we're in this text, uh, stop a couple times to reflect on the nature of the deacon's ministry. But uh, the apostles recognize almost immediately, as I said, that this is some threat to the unity of the church, and their response is immediately to summon the full number of the disciples, right? And so uh, that's, that's a lot of disciples at this point. We don't know how many, but <laughs> a lot. And uh, I think this is the kind of verse that it's a little bit easy to overlook, uh, right? on the face of it. uh, It's pretty simple what this verse is saying, like they called everybody together. But uh, I would suggest we should stop here and think for a second about what this means, right? Where uh, many of you are members and many more of you know that we practice membership as a church, and uh, we are somewhat unique in that, certainly not the only church in our our local area, that has, like, a defined membership, but you will hear people in our area say uh, things like uh, church membership is just kind of a a made-up deal, right? Like, you, you won't find anywhere in the New Testament where uh, an apostle or someone else says, you should become a member of a church. And on the one hand, uh, I say, absolutely that's true. Like, You are not going to find a verse that says you should become a member of a church. Uh, But in another way, very respectfully, I would suggest that that's uh, kind of a lazy way of reading the Bible, right? To insist that we should only believe things that are directly and flatly said in Scripture and not thoroughly consider what Scripture is saying and what is certainly implying must be true uh, is is not the way we want to read our bibles and furthermore we certainly don't want anyone and especially our young people to think we do things just because that's the way we do them we don't have any biblical underpinning for our ideas we just we just do things that seem good to us right that we should always stake what we do what we believe what we prioritize in the Word of God, and certainly if there's a point at which where we decide that we should operate in this way as a church body conflicts with maybe something other local churches say or do, we should make sure that everyone understands the biblical rationale for why we do what we do. And I would suggest to you that this is one of several points in the New Testament where church membership absolutely is clearly implied. It it does not say become a member of the church, but just like I would point to any text that suggests that the church should discipline a person who is intentionally in sin, and ultimately if that person will not repent then put them out of the fellowship implies that there's an in the fellowship to begin with, right? A person can't be put out of fellowship if there's not in. You can't be out if you're not in. Uh, In the same way, I think what this text is going to, to demonstrate to us is that this church had a clear understanding of a defined membership, right? They didn't summon random people. They didn't, like, say, hey, we have a decision to make, and so, like, gather up a few thousand random people. Whether they know the gospel or not doesn't really matter, but we want, you know, it's important that we have a vote here, so let's just get some warm bodies to fill the seats. Now, the apostles are delegating a decision to a specific group of people, a defined church body, the full number of the disciples. And so, I would suggest to you, as I would uh, both in Acts 6 and then when we get there, Acts 15, where we see the congregation also there having some role in decision-making, that not only is this text implying to us that the church ought to have a defined membership, that, that they know who is in the church and who is not in the church, but importantly, like, who is in the church matters because there are ways that uh, the congregation ought to be involved in the making of decisions. Right, that some authority rests with the congregation for making decisions, and they want the full congregation together, uh, not because they're brainstorming ideas for guys who could potentially be deacons, but because they understand that the congregation has some role to play in making this specific decision. And so, they call the congregation together, and explain the situation. They say, you know, this absolutely needs to happen. Somebody needs to be serving these tables and making sure that the food is distributed equally. However, uh, we shouldn't be doing that, right? Like, the apostles should not take their attention off proclaiming the Word of God, that that is the overriding priority of apostolic ministry, and so as much as we think that this is a problem that needs to be addressed, if we exercise our authority to solve this issue, then it's going to take our attention away from proclaiming the Word of God, and that's not right. Uh, However, there does need to be somebody in authority uh, over the food distribution, and so we're suggesting to you that you pick out seven other people to oversee this. Seven other people who can take care of this responsibility so our attention isn't turned away from the clear proclamation of the word. And so they tell the congregation specifically to pick out seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and then the apostles will appoint them to this duty. Right? And Note, I think, that uh, full of spirit and of wisdom, the way Luke is wording this, I think it's fairly clear that he's imagining the kind of wisdom given by the Spirit. So, he says full of spirit and of wisdom. He wants these to be uh, guys who are imbued with the Spirit, guys who are displaying the fruit of the Spirit in the sense of character, but they also have the kind of wisdom that uh, God grants through His Spirit. And not only that, but they have to be people of good repute. They have to be, what Paul would say later, essentially, looked upon well by outsiders, right? They have to be people uh, not only that we trust as displaying godly character, but they should be people who are known to be of that kind of character. And When, he, when they say this, I think that probably to me suggests something further, right? That, that they recognize uh, he, that rightly some responsibility to make this decision or to make this determination rests with the congregation. That additionally, something that seemed to be clear uh, to this point in Acts is becoming clearer in my mind. And that is this church had the kind of fellowship where uh, this wasn't a weird question to ask or a weird thing to instruct them to do, right? The they didn't uh, they didn't respond like, well, I don't know any of these people. I mean, we sit together for an hour a week, but like we don't ever really talk or interact with each other. How would I know how people in the community see them, right? Like for the apostles to have made this request there's clearly to me some implication that these people are uh, intimately involved in each other's lives in a way that, like, they know uh, men who are wise, men who display godly character, men who are thought well of by people outside of the church. Like, this is uh, implying well something about the nature of the fellowship itself, that it is, there is some kind of defined membership Uh, There's an idea of what it means to be in the church, but more than that, it's implying something about the nature of the church's fellowship, that they have like an intimate connection with each other where they know whether or not people meet these qualifications. And then the apostles say with those seven people, ultimately they will be appointed to this duty, or we will appoint them to this duty. So, what the apostles are suggesting then, uh, I think, demonstrates uh, that authority rests with the apostles, right? Because the apostles identify the problem, the apostles summon the congregation, the apostles propose a very specific solution to the congregation, yet the apostles invite the congregation to make some determination about who these seven men will be, and then the apostles ultimately appoint them. And so there I would suggest to you that if you've ever wondered, like, why we do things the way we do them, uh, it would be built on texts like this. There's a reason that we have a defined membership as a congregation and that one of the responsibilities of the members of the church is to come together when we call the congregation together and to help us make decisions in the spirit of the wisdom of Christ to the best of our ability, right? If you've been with us since the beginning in Acts, you remember that when they had to pick uh, a replacement for Judas, what did they do? They cast lots, right? Like, uh, they selected the next apostle with the casting of lots. And now, endued by the Spirit of God, when there are seven deacons to be chosen, they don't cast lots, they call the congregation together and ask the congregation to affirm the people that God is calling to this ministry. And so, uh, you know, we also try to reflect this balance as the elders commend each year to uh, men who we believe are of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom for roles as elders or roles as deacons but we ask you as a congregation to affirm them for that work like is it true do you believe that they are of good repute full of spirit and full of the wisdom the spirit brings right that we all have a responsibility as a church together, to ensure that the church's testimony is protected. And absolutely one of the things that is most disruptive to a church's testimony is being lax about who is involved in leadership, right? That we all, to protect the unity of the church, to protect the witness of the church in our community, we all have a responsibility in making decisions about Who will lead us? And I think you're seeing that here in this text. And the apostles appoint these seven specifically so that they can continue to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. And I would... uh, there are lots of things I could say about verse 4 that you probably assume that I would say about verse 4, if you know me at all, uh, but uh, I want to say something else, all right? That, that, like, on reading 1 through 4, if uh, if you ask me, like, assess the degree to which we faithfully represent the dynamics that seem to be evident in verses 1 through 4 as a church, I would say... In some ways, we're doing very, very well. Like, we we have a membership. We entrust our members to help make decisions about what is the best interest of the church. How do we most uh, well steward what God has given us to pursue the mission that God has? given us, that there are aspects of our life together at church that I think very faithfully reflect some of the dynamics you're seeing play out in the beginning of Acts 6. And at the same time, uh, I would would suggest that there are probably some things that we could do better uh, on what is good. First, I, I think uh, I think it's important that we recognize always and emphasize always that uh, membership is not a light thing. That membership should not be something that eh, it's just something we do, right? That like what the scriptures seem clearly to be implying is that not only are there members, but the members have some role in the decisions that a church ought to make, uh, the decisions that a church makes as a congregation. And so, always and absolutely a requirement for somebody to step into the membership of the church is that as near as we can tell without having read a person's heart, they seem to be a genuine believer in the gospel of jesus christ that there should not to the best of our ability there should not ever be unregenerate church members right? that if we see scripture implying that the members have some role to play in the making of decisions regarding the nature of the church's ministry and the nature of the church's leadership then absolutely We should do everything we can to guard the membership of the church. And at the same time, I would suggest to you uh, that uh, maybe not in anything that we say, but in sometimes the way that we act, like it seems like, church membership isn't really that big of a deal, right? Like, uh, I can come, I can not come, I don't really need to give myself over to the assembling of Christ's people. Uh, You know, I'll come to the annual meeting and vote on a couple deacon candidates if they provide pie, but if they don't provide pie, then I'm not going to be there. I got other stuff going on on Sundays, right? Like, uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Like, Sometimes, uh, the things of the world distract us, and a very thing to kind of scoot off to the side of the plate, and maybe it accidentally falls on the floor, is obligations we have as members of the church, and we do not lightly suggest this thing is an obligation of a member of the church, but when we say these things are obligations of a church member, like, we should understand those things as obligations of a church member. When we say that you as a member promise not to do anything to disrupt the unity of the church, that's not an optional thing. That's an obligation. When we say that you should be devotionally committed to the Lord and demonstrate that through a personal Uh, private prayer life and the study of God's Word, that's not something you're free to decide to do or not do. That's something you've promised us that you will do as a member. When we say that we think every member should absolutely be committed to praying for missionaries, that's not something that you can do or not do. If we decide as a church that we are going to invest in this missionary and their ministry, then you have an obligation to be holding that person up in prayer, holding their ministry up up in prayer that that we don't get to decide like what the terms of our membership are we have decided together what it is that we think the bible is calling a church member to and then we're committing to do that for one another i would also say that uh there's There's things that don't come up often, but they come up often enough that I think they ought to be addressed. Uh, And one of those things, I think, is uh, kind of this idea that, like, we have elders, and they oversee the spiritual side of church life, and then we have deacons, and they oversee the physical side of church life. And there's kind of a division, like sacred and secular, uh, right? Like, the, the, you know, they, they have different jobs. And I think it's true in a sense that uh, we have uh, given certain responsibilities to the guys that we call deacons. And we understand that if the elders were exercising those responsibilities, right, that uh, it would be taking their time and attention away from prayer and the preaching of God's Word. Right? That uh, the deacons, thankfully, uh, oversee the building, maintain the building, they oversee the budget, they make sure the lights stay on. Like, am incredibly grateful for the deacons' ministry because somebody has to do all of that work, and if they weren't doing it and the elders did, then it would, like here... It would turn the apostles' attention away from prayer and ministry of the Word. It would turn our elders' attention away from prayer and ministry of the Word. But if we allow this assumption to creep in that elders do spiritual things and deacons do physical things, then I think we've done a severe injustice. Uh, And I'd I'd say that... uh, I would suggest to you uh, that the idea that there can be sacred and there can be secular and the two don't have anything to do with each other itself is a lie. That that it is not true that there are physical things that don't have anything to do with spiritual things. Right? Like who the deacons decide to allow uh, to use our building from outside in the community certainly could have spiritual implications what the budget looks like does in some way affect our priorities as a church. That almost everything that the deacons do has spiritual implication. And likewise, much of what the elders decide to do have physical implications. That it's absurd to think that the two could be uh, divided. uh, And I would suggests further that we're, we're missing what Luke is saying, ultimately, right? Where uh, in verse 1, is the deaconing is the daily distribution, and in verse 4, as I said, the deaconing is the service of the ministry of the Word, right? That all people, elders and deacons, are ministering. They're ministering to one of the, t- that the apostles, I think also the elders, are ministering to one of the priorities of the church the prayer and the ministry of the word but our love for the word of god absolutely has implications about our physical life together like how do we address a benevolent need or what do we what ministries do we choose to invest in right and that those things also are ministry that that If we allow ourselves, I think, to be influenced by the idea that some types of ministry in the church are in any way more significant than others, then like ultimately we're, we're trying to rub away the luster that God intended for the church to have, like that we are all equipped for the work of ministry. Every single person in Jesus Christ is equipped for the work of ministry. And there is no ministry that's insignificant, and if, if we ever act like there are some ministries that are more significant than the other, then we're essentially assuming that, that God intended for there to be a diversity of gifts in the body by mistake, right? like that he, it wasn't intentional, that God absolutely was envisioning a group of people each equipped for the work of ministry and each playing their part. And deacons step into the life of the church not because, well, somebody needs to do this work of the ministry and the elders can't do it, but, you know, like you have to have an official, official position to serve the church, but because a very specific need arose where somebody was going to have to be singled out as having authority, right? That That's not to say that the other people in the church weren't absolutely involved in the distribution of the food or in any other number of ways, but there needed to be, the church needed to recognize somebody or some persons in a position of authority. And I would uh, suggest to you that that is the second point I would say, that like, we don't articulate anything verbally, but maybe uh, because we've had a long pattern Uh, we start to make erroneous assumptions, and that is we have one type of deacon now, right? We have deacons that oversee the budget and the use of the building and basically our stewardship together as a church, but the pattern we're seeing here isn't, I think, uh, deacons that just oversee physical things. I think the apostles identify a specific need Recognize somebody needs to be appointed uh, to a position of authority over that need. And so they ask someone to begin serving in this capacity in an official way to preserve the unity of the church. And I would suggest to you that any time that we recognize uh, an issue or a need that potentially jeopardizes the unity of the church, Uh, And the answer to that isn't just somebody serving in that capacity, but somebody needs to be recognized in an official capacity that that person should serve as a deacon, that we should appoint them a, a deacon of that ministry. And we've had deacons for a long time, and we'll continue to have deacons for a long time Uh, And those deacons have served essentially the same role the entire time that they've served the church, and I would expect they'll probably always be deacons serving in that role because we'll always, I assume, want to keep the lights on. But uh, to suggest that we have uh, deaconing down, deaconing is what we've asked deacons to do in the past and nothing else. I think would be a tragic mistake, right? Like we would absolutely all recognize that if I was having a heart issue, I would go and see a cardiologist. If I was having a lung issue, I would go and see a pulmonologist. If I was having an issue with my foot, I'd go see a podiatrist. But if I was having a heart issue and I went to see a podiatrist, like, I'd, you'd say I'm an idiot, right? Like, there can be more than one kind of doctor. We're not, we're not confused by the fact that pulmonologists and cardiologists have different disciplines, but they're both doctors. Right? And so absolutely, deacons will, we will have deacons continuing to serve as deacons have really always served here. But I think anytime, and especially when we're going through a period of transition as a church, and may in fact recognize areas where the church would be well served by somebody being recognized as officially serving in some capacity, uh, it would be appropriate for us to appoint a deacon in that role to preserve the unity of the church. The congregation hears what the apostles lay out and uh, uh, heartily agree, and they choose seven men. Uh, I think it's interesting that as you look through this list of names, two things should stand out. Number one, uh, I'm, they're Hellenist names, right? The, the problem was Hellenists uh, felt like they were being treated unjustly in the food distribution, and the church selects Hellenist men to oversee the distribution to the Jewish widows and the Hellenist widows, right? They don't uh, they don't say, well, okay, so half Hebrews and half Hellenists, and we're, we're going to try to make things fair, that the people who, uh, presume most of the people in the congregation were uh, on the Hebrew side, but the congregation recognizes because of the issue here, because of the nature of the need, the best thing for the unity of the church would be that this is all overseen by Hellenists, right? That, in other words, they prize the unity of the church over who gets how many loaves of bread number two uh, on everything i just said regarding verse four note that the only two deacons here that we know anything about from scripture uh, stephen and philip uh, both go on to have ministry over the course of the book of acts and that ministry has little to do with the daily distribution of the food Stephen ends up preaching a remarkable sermon and being the first martyr of the church, and Philip ends up being known as the evangelist, right? That, that none of these guys, presumably, get so locked into the one way that they're serving the church that they don't take every opportunity they have to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advance. That, again, this idea that, well, these guys were administering to the physical needs of the church and they couldn't really do spiritual things, is absurd that both of those guys were powerfully used by God to proclaim the word of God. Again, we are all equipped for the work of ministry and all have a role to play in the ministry of the church, whether we're serving in an officially recognized capacity or not. When they set these seven before the the apostles and the apostles uh, lay hands on them, recognize them for the work of Uh, this this ministry and then luke summarizes this again by saying that the word of god continued to increase but this time it's not just increasing but it's multiplying greatly and i think it's fascinating to consider uh the fact that uh it's been increasing it's been increasing and right like what was prompting the increase a miracle a sermon right like uh but when the church uh, addresses the potential for disunity, that's the thing that sets off great multiplication, right? And I think, (laughs) I think uh, it should sit heavy with us that the nature of the congregation's life together uh, is so powerfully used by God to multiply the congregation, right? It's not just multiplying greatly. A great number of priests are coming to the faith. The guys who've been opposing the church are now being drawn by the nature of the community's life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, the fellowship of a church when they're walking in the Spirit and loving each other well is evangelistically dynamic. It is incredibly powerful and it's the thing that seems to bear the most remarkable fruit right and so I would suggest to you that when you walk away from Acts uh, Acts 6 1 through 7 you don't think well that's an interesting incident in the life of the church and I guess if you're like a church governance nerd you'd really like that but I don't know it doesn't really have much to do with me uh Hey, you've absolutely missed the point of the text, right? That Like, what what is being presented here is a congregation that is intimately acquainted with one another, dedicated to truly resolving issues as they come up and protecting the unity of the church, and that God uses that to produce incredible evangelistic fruit. In fact, I would would suggest a lot about what we're going to read with Stephen is prompted by the fact that the Sanhedrin is seeing even priests being drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ by the nature of the church's life together. And so, for us, I would suggest to you that The, the part of our hearts that tells us, like, oh, the church will be fine if I sleep in today. Or, you know, I got other stuff going on, I'm just really busy. Or, uh, you know, somebody should do that, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, somebody else really needs to fill that need. Like, that part of us that we're always fighting against, like, that part needs to be rooted out and killed that the, our fellowship together, our fellowship as a church is absolutely vital in our fulfilling the task that God has given us, right? that uh, one of the most powerful displays of the fruit of the gospel is our life together, and not just coming together, but genuinely loving each other, genuinely serving each other, doing the hard work of confronting problems when they arise, and then working together towards a solution, giving the gospel of Jesus Christ opportunity to be on display just to each other, but also to the community watching us. I don't… I don't think in an hour I could wholly lay my hand around the degree to which our allowing the fellowship of the church to become second place third place fifth place in our lives affects our soul it affects our children's souls it affects the view of the church and the community around us who does not yet know Christ like for our souls sake for our children's souls sake for the sake of the souls of the people in the community who not do not yet know the gospel of Jesus Christ, absolutely, the fellowship of the church should be top priority for us. But it can't just be getting together. It has to be gospel-informed life together. That there needs to be a love, a truth, a grace that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who see it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you've brought us together. God, we repent, I repent, of uh, the things that have crowded out, uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ in my heart. God, I I repent of the ways in which uh the fellowship of your body has taken the passenger seat in my life sometimes. God, I pray that you would help us each to see, God, what you intend for the bride of Christ. God, what it means to be a body of many parts working together. God you would help us to long for uh, membership in